0: Hey everyone, it's Tim Nelson here. Welcome to this week's podcast, Cause to Cure. This podcast is my personal take as it relates to our team's activities focused on congenital heart disease. My day-to-day experience with the largest dedicated team focused on single ventricle congenital heart disease was founded at Mayo Clinic by the Todd and Karen Wanick Family Program. This team is accountable to the development of new products that aims to cure congenital heart disease. We leverage basic science research and synchronize it with the world's largest clinical trial network to de-risk product development and make it available to our patients. Now, with a nationwide consortium, we are aiming to leverage a clinical trial infrastructure focused on single ventricle congenital heart disease and test and ultimately accelerate the availability of new products. It takes a team of partners to make this happen. Thanks for joining the team. Hello, this is Tim Nelson, Cause to Cure podcast. I'm with Dr. Frank Setta from Mayo Clinic. We're at the Orlando meeting here with the CHOP 2020 and we're sitting poolside outside, so you'll hear a bit background noise, but we're chatting poolside here today about second opinions. And so Frank, introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure, Frank Setta. I um, do pediatric cardiology
1: and adult congenital heart disease. My training was both in internal medicine and in pediatrics been practicing in these fields uh, for about 25 years. I've uh, been at Mayo since uh, 2003 and originally did my cardiology training at Mayo in the uh, mid-1990s, spending the other part of my career back in Chicago. Um, Tim's asked me to discuss uh, second opinions, and I guess I was going to take the tack of looking at this from the position of, uh, you know, I've followed the patient for maybe five, ten years, have a good rapport with patient and family. And patients usually want to seek second opinions when we reach a crossroads of some point. And that crossroads could be something obvious. Oh, it's time for major surgery, or it's time to discuss something traumatic like transplant. Or sometimes it's even something else. It could be participation in a certain sport, moving to a different area of the country. Uh, many reasons we, we, we will run into this situation. And, and patients and families will come in uh, to the person they've been following for a number of years, sometimes a bit hesitant and say, oh, kind of, you know very carefully you know we really like you we've been following you for a number of years but we really think you might want another opinion and I guess on the physician side what do I think is the best way to react to that or how do I react to that I usually tell families uh, please uh, view this as, a, as an analogy view this like going to shop for a car you walk into the first dealership you meet the very uh, savvy first uh, salesman he shows you the first car are you gonna buy that car? Probably not. You're gonna to wanna to see more cars in the same lot. You're gonna to wanna to shop around. You'll tell them you'll be back next weekend. Maybe they never show back up. Use that due diligence that you would use to find your next car with your your health care or your child's health care. So second opinions always a good thing. Always a good thing.
0: Have you ever felt uncomfortable when somebody asks you about second filler? How does that make you feel when somebody says, "I kind of want a second opinion"? What does that make you feel? Yeah, I I think um, if you're in this because you want the best for your patient
1: and you realize sometimes there are other centers that might actually do a certain thing better than you do or your surgeon does, yeah, that's what you want. You're in it for the patient's care. Uh, you want the best for them, the best quality, the best longevity of their life of their for their lives. It's not just about how many cases can we get at my institution? Um, so I think that's an, that's an important thing. And no, I've never really felt uh, betrayed by a patient. Tell them, yeah, go get a second opinion, get a third opinion, happy to see you again if you wanna be seen here. Actually, many times what we'll do too is we'll send, if it's a long distance type of thing to another major center, we'll accumulate the data, including angiograms and echo pictures and send discs there and tell them, you know what, let me run this by Dr. So-and-so in Boston or Philadelphia or Stanford, and you don't even have to go anywhere. Let them look at it, and if they look at it and say, hey, yeah, we have something to offer this patient that maybe is not offered at our institution, then make the sojourn, make the trip, spend the money. But in the meantime, virtually for free usually, you can get a nice second opinion from a colleague, and and that works both ways. For every time we send someone to another institution to get a good opinion, we'll get an opinion back. So I think it it all works out in the wash. And again, why are we in this? We're in this for good care. I think the other thing too that, that we should acknowledge as a field, every surgeon, every institution does not do all surgeries equally well. There are some surgeons who are the world's best in a certain procedure yet they're average or even below average, at something else and vice versa. So I think sometimes you hear about, well, only the large volume centers do X, Y, and Z. Yeah, the large volume centers generally are going to do a better job than the smaller volume centers, but certainly there are niches within the small volume centers where there's expertise, or there's a particular uh, diagnosis seen more frequently. And I think that's where you have to be a bit savvy about that, and that's and that's where we can help them as healthcare professionals to sort out where to get the second opinion, or maybe where not to get the second opinion from.
0: You know, and a lot of the people listening to this are going to be families, and uh, they're going to be um, a little bit intimidated to think about the second opinions and and how do you, what would you advise your family member going to another institution to get an understanding of what is the volume of this particular procedure and how do how would you advise them to ask that question? Yeah. I
1: think that's that's the key. These data are not all that easy to find. You have to act, actually ask very direct questions about. How many of X procedure do you do per year? What are your results? Uh, how are they doing long-term, things like that. You have to be uh, savvy with that. And then the data you get from that, bring back to the person who was your usual primary cardiologist and say, hey, I went to this other center. They said they do thousands of this. And that's where you, you kind of get the, the maybe objective view that when they come back with some astronomical number, you can sit there and say, they actually said that because nobody nobody in the world does that many so it helps to sort out the the misinformation that may be thrown out there i think the other thing too when you are the person the physician the institution doing the second opinion be honest about things listen first of all to hear well what do the other people have to say and sometimes the patients don't want to give that up because they think that this is all a very cultish situation we're not going to disagree with dr so-and-so at this esteemed institution but i think it's helpful for us to hear the other institutions thought this this and this do you guys agree do you disagree where do you disagree i think it's helpful for us to have the full picture sometimes i think sometimes uh we we give a not complete second opinion because we don't have all the data because some families hold back because they want to make sure that it's as virgin as possible, what we're seeing. And I think it's important that we actually have all the data. And the other thing I always try to tell our, our trainees, when being the person giving the second opinion, never say or give the family the impression that, oh, it's great that you finally got to us, that the other people were completely uh, corrupt, completely uh, misguided, uh, you, you got to us just in time so we could save your life. Uh, that's a lot of drama. I mean. Uh, most people out there do a very good job and are very well trained. There are some, some of these uh, lesions and some of these areas that are controversial. We all don't have the right, uh, the right answer for things. Things lots of times have to be tailored specifically for a specific patient, and one answer doesn't fit all. So I think we have to be cognizant of all those things.
0: No, I think this is great advice and I think I can only imagine how stressful it is to families to try to figure out what question to ask and um, they want to be respectful to you as a physician whether they want a second opinion um, but ultimately they want the honest answer I can only imagine and and uh, the it's hard to get this data Um, is there is there is there ways to get the data at the specific surgical volume level or is there, is there a place where families can go to get that data independently of asking these questions? Yeah, I think that, that is a bit tough, even,
1: even us as physicians. There's something called the STS database that chronicles the data for all of the uh, congenital heart surgery centers in the United States. But if I wanted to go query that data and find out what the specifics numbers are for another institution, me as the physician, it would be difficult for me to find that out. So yeah, I think that's an area where we as a field need to be moving forward still with with transparency. And I think, I think we're much further down the road than where we were five or 10 years ago, but still there is certainly lots of work that needs to be done with that to make it easier. I think the reason there's some hesitancy with bringing forth numbers, um, their patients sometimes will transfer care from one center to another. And those of us who work at the bigger centers sometimes will see the, the worst type of cases. And then you look at the numbers and say, wow, you guys don't have great results for X, Y, and Z. Well, that's because we maybe take care of the worst of X, Y, and Z. Whereas the other institution who has transferred the patient over, they only take, say, the easiest or the, the less complicated of the cases. So, I some it, transparency is not as easy as. What's the numerator? What's the denominator? Okay, this is your mortality or your morbidity rate. It's it's unfortunately a lot more complicated than that.
0: No, I think that's a great point because I don't think a lot of families are fully appreciate that. And um, the decision making of who's included in surgeries at one institution may be different than another. And there's not a standard answer. And I think this is probably the reason why second opinions are, are so important so that you get a different perspective and you have a dialogue and you get comfortable asking these questions right no i think I think for any family any time it's a crossroads
1: and you feel somewhat uncomfortable with the new path or you feel that you're deteriorating and maybe should be looking for a new path yeah, those are times that are logical to think about a second opinion. And I would I would guess that the vast majority of providers would say, absolutely. In fact, they may be, even be helpful to guide you to get second opinions at certain other institutions, uh, whereas the, the layperson would not know that. They might go for the one that they just saw on television, on the, on the TV commercial last night, whereas we may know that, no, that place doesn't really see many patients like you go to this other place in the next state Where they see
0: 10 times as many patients like you so i think that's where we can be helpful with that i recently realized how many advice people are getting off of facebook and um in their their peer groups of of advice that they have what's your perspective on that Mm -hmm. and how can we help and do better in that as a medical provider i think the social media in general has
1: been a two-edged sword i mean it's a two-edged sword for political opinions or opinions about what food we should be eating what store we should be shopping at same thing with your health care I think it's been good because there's a lot of discussion there and you may learn some things but you have to realize a lot of that is unedited and uh, also people will share experiences in there where they may not have had an experience that was optimal and that may be multifactorial why that is Um, so I think that's something social media is good but definitely uh, read all of that stuff with a jaunticed eye about what's going on there and try to be critical about it.
0: Last question for you. Uh, what do you uh, what do you believe is going to be the biggest change in the next five years in your practice and and what do you see coming down the pipeline? Maybe something you saw here at the meeting, or what do you what do you believe is is on the cusp of really changing the advice that you give your patients?
1: Yeah, I, I think the things I see probably in the last five years, that we're gonna see come to maturation in the next five to 10 years. Um, Non-surgical approaches to lesions. More and more things being done in the cath lab, where obviously the lengths of stays of the patients are measured in hours instead of days. Uh, Recovery of patients being quicker. We've already seen a big acceleration of percutaneous valve therapy, where Valves can be put in the cath lab. Patients go home the next day. They're not in the hospital for five days or a week or something like that. That's accelerated a lot over the last five or 10 years. I'll, I think we'll see the application of that to more and more patients and more and more diverse diseases in the next five to 10 years. Cell-based therapy, obviously, that's another, another uh, area. You know, we, we do a lot of things for plumbing. We can change valves. We can move pipes around, veins, arteries, surgeons are in the cath lab there's a lot of plumbing but how about the care of the myocardium the heart muscle really um we have some medicines but we haven't really had innovative care of the heart muscle itself and hopefully some of the things that you've been working with and that that we've been working with cell-based therapy we'll see mature in the next five ten years and that that will be a big deal and hopefully the we can take the specter of potential heart transplant away from a lot of these patients down the road
0: well, thanks Frank. Um, right. It's been a privilege to uh, to work with you and the whole consortium and I'm excited about where this all leads us and uh, I'm sure there's many families that are appreciative of your uh, second opinion and encouraging them to, to think about that. So thanks for your time today. Great. Right. Thanks Tim.